<clears throat> well, good morning. Great to see everybody. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm part of our preaching team. And we're continuing this series, We Want a King. Uh, we've been looking at the lives of Saul and David, and soon we'll turn to the life of Solomon, uh, these first three kings of the nation of Israel. And um, today we're looking at what sadly is an all too familiar story. You've heard this story, some version of this in the news. It feels like every few months you hear some version of a story like this where a famous, powerful, spiritually impressive man abuses his power, sexually exploits a woman or women, tries to cover his tracks, and does irreparable harm to those impacted by his sin. Sound familiar? Sure. I'm not going to name names this morning, but we could name names. This happens over and over and over in churches, in businesses, in companies, in all sorts of places, in politics. And it's a painful story. And here we have to read it in the pages of Scripture. And so I want to just give uh, as much as we can. We've tried to warn uh, you that have kids, but uh, even for those of you that don't have kids, th this may be a story where you feel like you're kind of bracing yourself, depending on your past and depending on your history. Uh, this could be a painful story, um, but I, I do hope that it actually will be strangely refreshing. In a way, I think the way the Bible deals with this particular incident of David sexually exploiting Bathsheba and then murdering her husband to cover it up, the, the way that this story is told actually has some strangely refreshing qualities to it. For one thing, the story is told so honestly. Right, when these things happen in culture and in the news and in uh, denominations and so on and so forth, it, it's always obscured. It's always minimized. It's always like, well, I don't know. And, and there's, all, there's a lot of like haze in it. This story doesn't have any haze. It's just told very honestly. It's one of the reasons I think the Bible's true, actually, is because the Bible makes the heroes of the Bible look terrible. Right, you wouldn't do that if you're just trying to make up a story to be impressive. But this is a terrible story of David, and the Bible tells it pretty terribly. Another refreshing dynamic in this story is just how clearly the sin is condemned and confronted. Again, people try to minimize, people try to deflect, people try to make things seem like they're not that bad, or say, well, it's just locker room stuff, or just boys will be boys, or whatever the excuse might be. The Bible doesn't do that here. In the Bible also, I find this to be refreshing in this chapter that it's just dealt with and owned so straightforwardly. The sin is actually owned. David is going to sin greatly, but he will own it. And the difference that makes when the person who commits the sin actually owns up to it, actually takes responsibility, actually says, yes, this was sin. Yes, this was my fault. Yes, I did it wrong. That actually creates not just a path of forgiveness for that person, but healing for everybody Involved. So there's some refreshing dynamics in this story, but uh, this story, I think, will confront some of us. Some of us are on a path, maybe not as extreme as this story represents, but we're already on a path, drifting into more and more serious sin. And my prayer today is, if that's you, that this would be God's voice warning you, saying, stop. pump the brakes, come clean. It doesn't have to go this way. I think this is a story also that reminds us just how disappointing it is to follow human leaders. And I say that as a leader. 
You want to be disappointed? Hang in here. Just stick with me. I can disappoint you. I guarantee that. Not trying to, but that's what happens. And, and every human leader is disappointing except for Jesus. And that's one of the things that we see in this story is that the people say, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. And he gives them king, 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 king. And they all disappoint. We saw the greatness of David last week. We looked at the, the hesed, the covenant love, the loyal love, the kindness he showed to an undeserving person like Mephibosheth. And then here we see the ruthlessness and the sinfulness. And it reminds us of how fickle human leaders are. I think this passage challenges big misunderstandings that the, that the world has and the church has related to forgiveness. We live in a world where uh, the, the world doesn't think anyone can be forgiven. And the church tends to think that if you're forgiven, well, everything goes okay. This, act, this passage actually challenges both those things. And I think this passage really helpfully shows us how the message of Scripture is always relevant in a broken world. I, I don't have to stand here today to try to make this passage relevant. It's relevant because these are the stories we read. And so um, there's not a lot of yucks today. I mean, I'm not that funny anyway, right? You guys, you guys <laughs> occasionally you, I get a teehee out of you, you know, but there's not a lot of... But today, it's really, it's pretty serious. And that's okay. Because actually, one of the things I believe about the Scripture is that when we preach the Scripture, we should feel like the Scripture feels. And so we want to yield to that dynamic today. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll get into this story. Father, I invite you now to speak by your Spirit, through your Word. God, for those who need comforted, would you comfort for those who need confronted, would you confront? And God, would you lead us toward a path of forgiveness and healing and grace? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, you're going to need your Bible today. If you didn't open it for the scripture reading, go ahead and grab it. There's uh, Bibles in the seats in front of you if you don't have it or pull it up on your phone. Uh, but 2 Samuel 11 is where we're going to camp. We'll also get into the first part of 2 Samuel chapter 12. And what I want to do is walk through this story, some of it in more detail than others, and really look at these different scenes. Uh, each of these scenes start with the letter C, okay? This will be fun. So I'm a preacher. I can't help it. All right, so the first scene is the crime. The crime, verses 1 to 5 describe the crime. Let's look at this together. In chapter 11, verse 1, here's what it says. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Uh, this is the narrator's way of telling us, hey, something bad's about to happen, right? This is like when you're watching a movie, when you're watching a movie and it cuts to a new scene and there's a thunderstorm happening. It's the director's way of saying, hey, what's going to happen next is not going to be good. And this is the way of, of the, the author saying, hey, this isn't going to be good. Hey, uh, it was the time of year when kings went out to battle, and David didn't. Not only is that just not what most kings did, but it's not what the people wanted. In 1 Samuel 8, when they said, we want a king, give us a king like all the other nations, that our king may go out before us and may fight our battles. What did they want? They didn't want David sitting at home on his roof. So David doesn't go to battle. David doesn't do what kings did. David doesn't do what he was called to do. And often our sin actually starts with abdicating the responsibilities God's given us. And he gets bored. And he gets into trouble. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. That's his house. By the way, the roof of the king's house would have been the highest point in the city. You'd have a vantage point of everything. You could see anywhere, anything. 
He's walking up on the roof, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So let's just uh, clarify this. Uh, Who is on the roof? Who in the story is on the roof? David's on the roof. Where is Bathsheba, the woman? She's not on the roof. It doesn't say where she is. Right, but this is how the story's told. This is how the story's understood, is that, well, David was up on his roof, and Bathsheba was on her roof, and she was taking a little sexy time bath, and David got seduced. No, that's not what it says. Look at what it says. Don't let the retellings, don't let the flannel graphs, actually, I don't think you would flannel graph this story, but don't, <laughs> don't let that distort what the text says. Look at the text. David saw from the roof. Who's on the roof? David. He saw a woman bathing. Now, think about this. This is ancient Israel. There is not indoor plumbing. You didn't have a shower in your house. You didn't have a a tub in your house with running water. So the way that people would bathe in in ancient societies like that is oftentimes you would bathe in public. I know that feels horrific to us, but if you've been in underdeveloped countries, you've seen this kind of thing. I've been in India uh, watching in some underdeveloped communities where people go to a river and they bathe. And oftentimes while they bathe, they're not even fully naked. But they bring their soap and they have their water and they have ways of covering themselves up. There's no indication in this, by the way, also, that Bathsheba's even naked. You see that? It doesn't say she's naked. It just says she's bathing. Well, in our world, we go, well, when I bathe, I'm naked. (laughs) So she must have been naked. Well, in underdeveloped countries, it's not even always like that. Now, maybe she was. It doesn't say. Maybe it wasn't a public kind of space. And again, he would have been able to see the public pools where people would bathe. He would have been able to see that. Maybe she was in you know, more of like a a, a backyard nook. Maybe she was on the roof. We don't know. My point is it doesn't say. The point is this is David looking for something. He saw her, that she was very beautiful. And he sent and inquired about the woman, verse three. And one said, so, by the way, just think of the guts of this. Hey, 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 go find out who that is. You're already on a path to trouble, man. You're already brazen. This isn't secretive. Like David put on a a costume and a disguise and he snuck to her house. No, no, no. He's brazen about this. Go find out who that is. Well, they get word back. All right, David. Hey, you want to know who it is? It's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. By the way, Eliam and Uriah were both part of David's mighty men. They were his special forces soldiers. This is his SEAL Team 6. These were the guys that did the heaviest fighting, the most strategic battle. Eliam, Uriah are both in this group. And they say, hey, Bathsheba's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. Warning lights. <laughs> David, she's off limits. This is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's wife. This is not someone for you. David, you have wives. David, you have concubines. But you can't have this one. So David sent messengers and took her. He's not driven here by chesed. He's driven by eros, by lust. And he takes her. It's so interesting to me that this passage follows the exact same pattern as Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve saw that the tree was good for food, and so they took it. Here, David sees from the roof Bathsheba, and he took her. And she came to him, 
and he lay with her. Now, think about this. This is always described as adultery. David committed adultery. That doesn't feel a great deal like adultery to me. Or when the secret service comes up at your house and says, uh, excuse me, miss, you need to come with us. The, the king is sent for you. I'm not, sure you get, I'm not sure you have a free no at that point. And if you don't have a free no, then you also don't have a free yes. And so people debate, what should this be called, right? And we have our modern categories of, uh, of adultery and sexual assault and uh, rape, right? We, it's like, what, is, uh, what, what category do you put this in? And I'm not sure how fair it is to put our categories on this moment, but here's what I would say. This is at the very least sexual exploitation. It's much more like rape than it is like adultery. So I'm not quite sure I want to apply that category to this. And as you see this, he lays with her. She'd been purifying herself. She returned to her house. The woman conceived and she sent and and told David. And, and what you realize here is there's nothing in this but action. There's no conversation. There's no hint of caring. There's no affection. There's no love. There's just lust. David doesn't in any point here call her by her name, doesn't even talk about her. And verse five, she's just known as the woman. Friends, this is what happens with sin. This is the nature of sin. It's the nature, especially of sexual sin, is it dehumanizes, it denames. It depersonifies. It objectifies and turns someone else into an object of your erotic pleasure. That's the crime. And, as so often happens, next we have the cover-up. You know, covering sin multiplies and intensifies it, doesn't it? Uh, more often than I would like to admit, I uh, spill something on my shirt. All right, I need like an adult bib. I don't know if they make those. Uh, one of you is going to buy one and send it to me, and that'll be so sweet. Um, I probably won't use it, but I need it. And because there's times when I'll, I'll spill something, I'll go, oh, man, I kind of like this shirt. Right? And, and so, you know, what do you do? You go, and what happens? It just spreads. And that's what happens here. Anytime, friends, if you're trying to cover your tracks, if trying to cover your sin, you're just going to multiply it. You're just going to spread it. If you try to keep it in the dark, it gro sin grows in the dark. Your only hope is to bring it out into the light, but that's not what David does. He tries to cover it. He covers it really in three parts. Uh, so this cover-up really has almost three scenes to it. The first one is he says, okay, we got a problem. She's pregnant. Let's get Uriah home. Let's get Uriah home. He tells Uriah, hey, Uriah, it's so awesome to have you. You got a night off. Hey, go, uh, and the, the text says, go wash your feet. That's a euphemism because everyone knew that to get into bed, you had to wash your feet. Hey, buddy, uh, your wife's going to be excited to see you. Why don't you go wash your feet? Oh, and it also says in verse uh, 9, or I'm sorry, in verse 8, and there followed him a present from the king. Oh, you know what, buddy? I've got a gift basket for you. Why don't you take this home? Enjoy your wife. Go make love to her. So good to see her. We rise like many high-level, elite-level soldiers. He's honorable often more honorable than the people sending them into battle. And he says, no, I'm not going to do it. And so he sleeps outside. He won't go in. He's like, and they come and they ask him, hey, why didn't you go in? Why didn't you go in your wife? He's like, listen, the ark is out there and the commanding officers are out there and my men are out there. I'm not going to, you know, sleep with my wife and enjoy all this luxury when all this stuff is going on out there. He's, it, it's interesting. Uriah the Hittite, he's a Gentile. He's not even Jew. And Uriah the Hittite is like the only true Israelite in this story. Say, I care about the honor of the Lord. I care about doing what's right. David says, all right, well, hey, you know what? Instead of going back today, here's part two. Why don't you just stay one more night? And then he gets him drunk. 
What you find is even hammered Uriah is still more honorable than David because he still doesn't go in to his wife. They all right, time to elevate this. Part three, David arranges his death. (laughs) This is so crazy because this is what Saul was trying to do to David. Saul was the crazy madman king who was trying to kill the good guys. And now David's become that. Part of what we need to see in this text is that even the best kings sometimes become like Saul. And so they say, hey, uh, here's what we're going to do. And so David writes a letter to Joab, the commander of this elite special forces. And he gives the letter to Uriah, says, hey, Uriah, go give this letter to Joab. Don't read it. Go give it to him. And he takes him this letter. And the letter says, here's what I want you to do. Get into some heavy fighting. Uh, Make sure Uriah is stationed at the front. And then everybody pull back so that he dies. So Uriah is carrying his own death sentence to Joab. And so that's what happens. Four times it's mentioned that he die. Verse 15, verse 17, verse 21, verse 24. Uriah the Hittite is dead. Uriah the Hittite is dead. Uriah the Hittite also died. This is all that becomes, it's all that matters. One commentator said the man after God's own heart takes the sword after God's own people. Here's the one who put Mephibosheth at his table and Uriah in his grave. This story feels like a mafia story. Feels like organized crime. It feels like what's going on. And here's the thing: when you talk to victims, especially of uh, environments where there's been systematized and protected abuse and sexual sin and sexual predation, they will say it felt like it was a mafia thing. And that's what this feels like. It's Thugsville. Here's what I want us to see: is that the slide into devastating sin is gradual and subtle. So be careful. See, we sit here and we go, well, I would never do this. And it's true. You might not have enough power. You might not have enough money. But, but we can't sit here and say, I would never do this. Guys, listen. This is the man after God's own heart. This is the anointed king. This is the guy who wrote all the Psalms that we turn to in our time of need. Right? There was a point where Samuel said to King Saul, uh, Saul, God's going to raise up somebody who's better than you. That was David. And here's what I want to tell you, and I want to tell me, David's better than you. Better than me. So if you go, well, I would never do this. Well, you're not better than David. And here's the thing. David didn't realize he was going to do this. David didn't wake up at the beginning of chapter 11 and go, I wonder who I could murder. Right? It's a gradual thing. It's a step by step. Right? He's only about three or four steps away from this getting really out of control. And here's what I want to say. So are you. So am I. Where is there sexual exploitation and murder and every other kind of sin in seed form in our hearts? And all it needs is a little bit of time. And all it needs is the right pressure. And all it needs is the right circumstance. And this little tiny sin might grow and grow and grow and give birth to something really heinous. So friends, if there's an area where you already sense that you're sliding, receive this today as God's warning. Not trying to shame you, trying to say, hey, come on. Don't don't descend into this cover-up. So we see the the crime, and then we see the cover-up. The next thing we see is the contrast. 
the contrast. We have to go to verse 25 to begin to see this. Uh, David gets word uh, that Joab has in fact allowed Uriah, Uriah to die. Uh, and so David sends back to the messenger. He says, verse 25, this is what you shall say to Joab. Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. See, sometimes you can agree to disagree about stuff, right? Who, who's better, LeBron or MJ? Doesn't matter. And those of you who think it matters, stop. It doesn't really matter, right? Right? You can agree to disagree about stuff. Other things you go like, this is just objectively true, though I hate to admit it. You know, John Elway has my heart, but Tom Brady's the best. It's just, you can't debate it, really, right? right? You can debate some stuff. Other stuff is like, this is just true. Well, here's what I want you to see in this, this passage is, is David wants to kind of create something debatable. Hey, here's how I want you to look at this. Here's how I want you to understand this. And then God comes in and says, no, 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 here's how it is. Right? You see this in the similar language of verse 25 and verse 27. David says to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. It literally in the Hebrew means, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Hey, you're right. I know you might have some problems with what happened, but don't let this be evil in your eyes. You know, the sword devours one now and another later. Like, this just happens. This is part of, uh, you know, this is, this is part of doing business. Don't let this be evil in your eyes, right? And this is the concern when you're stuck in sin, is you're not concerned about what God thinks. You're concerned about your image management. There's horizontal, what does everyone around me think? How do they assess it? But then the verdict is clear in verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, it was evil in Yahweh's eyes. Dale Ralph Davis says it this way. He says, David may have Bathsheba's flesh and Uriah's blood, but he will have to face Yahweh's eyes. I find this refreshing. So often you go, well, what? I don't know. There's two sides and how does this work and who's right? And he said, she said, this thing displeased the Lord. His eyes said, I don't like this. This is evil. This is wrong. Friends, the bottom line on our lives is what does God see and think? We can fool each other. We can lie to ourselves. But the Lord sees don't get caught in this contrast of playing to the hall of mirrors that is everyone's opinions. Live for an audience of one. Next, we have the confrontation. The confrontation. And this is such good news. Listen, friends. When our sin is confronted by others, it is God's grace to us. That is counterintuitive. We don't like it, right? Anytime someone says, hey, can I talk to you? Um, you know, I just noticed that the way that you handled this situation, the way that you spoke to her, the thing that you did here, right? This, it, it never feels good. You never like it, right? If someone confronts you about something, if you get caught in a sin and confronted with it, it never feels good. But here's what I want to tell you from this passage. It's God's grace, it actually is God's way of intervening, of God saying, I'm not going to let you keep going. Can you imagine what would happen if God just let us do everything we wanted to do and never stopped to intervene? Would that actually be God's love for us or his judgment? Romans 1 says it's his judgment. 
that he just turns the world over to what it wants. But God is gracious here to Nathan by confront, or I'm sorry, to David by confronting David's sin through Nathan. And there's a key word here that actually shows up in this whole passage. It's, it's used 12 times in chapter 11, and then one final time in chapter 12, verse 1. It's the word sent. All through this story, everyone is sending. This is one of the, the things that's just wild to me, is uh, there's all these intermediaries. Right, look at this. David, verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. Verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. The woman conceived. She sent and told David. So she sends messengers to communicate this news. David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David. Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, remain here today and tomorrow I will send you back. Verse 18, Joab sent and told David all the news. Verse 22, Joab had sent him to tell. David sent and brought her to his house in verse 27. Over and over, sending, sending, sending. There's all these people in the middle who could have maybe gone, ah, time out. Right, anytime you experience one of these situations where this kind of thing gets covered up and gets manipulated, there were all kinds of people who knew it. And none of them ever said, pump the brakes, stop. So everyone's sent, David's sending, Bathsheba's sending, Joab is sending. And then look at verse 1 of chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord's going, I've had enough of this. I'm going to send someone. I'm going to confront this. I'm going to deal with this. And look at how he does it. Uh, Nathan comes to David. He says, uh, hey, let me tell you about this thing, right? We have no indication that, that David, David probably thinks this is a real situation. He says, uh, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It's like a little pet lamb. He's going, hey, David, you, you listen to this story. This is incredible. This one guy, he had all these lambs. He had all these sheep. This other guy, he had, he had nothing, but he got this one, and they raised it. It was their little, they named it Lammy. And, uh, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. By the way, the, the beginning of the word Bathsheba means daughter. Verse 4, now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who'd come to him. But he took, that's the same word from chapter 11, David took her and lay with her, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who'd come to him. David, can you believe this? This one guy who had all these lambs, he had all this stuff. He had more than you could ever think. And this one guy who only had one lamb, when this guy had to provide a party for some people, rather than sacrificing some of his own, he took that guy's. What do you think of that, David? And David is fuming. David is angry. David is like, how dare this person do this? Look at what he says in verse five. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, right? He's invoking the name of God. Isn't it interesting how often we can hide our own sin by judging other people's sin in the name of God? As the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. It's not just what he did, it's that his heart had no compassion, had no care. And Nathan said to David, and man, I'd love to see footage of how he said it. And Nathan said to David, you are that man. 
David, I'm talking about you, man. It's you. You've got plenty of wives. You've even got concubines. You've got power. You've got authority. You've got everything you could ever want. And you took what wasn't yours. You are the man. This is God's grace. Proverbs 27.6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Sometimes a good friend wounds you. Sometimes a good friend says something that doesn't feel very good and it kind of stings. An enemy only tells you what you want to hear. Nathan here, the Lord here, is being a friend to David. David did take. He stole what wasn't his. And it's so interesting to me, just we see it in David, we see it in us. Isn't sin so much easier to see in other people than us? Right? Somebody has said that we, we judge ourselves by our intentions. We judge others by their actions. But here's what I know is we use the scripture as binoculars to look at the sin of everybody else. The Bible never says the, that it's supposed to be binoculars. It says it's supposed to be a mirror. Nathan confronts him. You are the man. He says, you had everything. I would have given you even more. But you've struck down, verse 9, the Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife. And he describes the consequences that will come. He confronts him, which is God's grace. And this leads us to the confession. This is the beginning of verse 13. The confession. I love, I love the clarity of this. I love the simplicity of this. I love the ownership of this. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Right? Rather than, than minimizing, right? Like last week after uh, Fun After Four, they did a family movie night. We watched Megamind. And uh, there's this scene in Megamind where, you know, someone has told Megamind something and Megamind turns out to be wrong. And he says, you were right. I was less right. Right? And that kind of kicked off a thing in our family I've told you about where when someone's wrong, we have to say really boldly and loudly, I was wrong. Right? We're not just going to say, I was less right. right. David doesn't do what everyone caught in this situation does. Well, do you know what she was wearing? Do you know the kind of situation she was in? Maybe she was asking for it. He doesn't deflect. He doesn't excuse. He doesn't create loopholes. He doesn't say, well, but compared to what other people did. He doesn't say, but. He doesn't minimize and go, well, it was just a mistake. You know, stuff happens. He says, I have sinned. I've sinned. This was wrong. This was wicked. This was evil. I have sinned. He doesn't throw a press conference and go, maybe if by chance anyone was hurt by this, then I'm sorry, I guess. He owns it. He takes ownership. That confession leads to the next part of the scene, which is the carrying away. The carrying away. In the rest of that verse, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Remember, David had said, hey, the guy that did this deserves to die. And in fact, that's true. That's actually a righteous judgment. David deserves to die for this. He's broken multiple of the Ten Commandments. He's coveted his neighbor's wife. He's killed his neighbor. 
He has lived as though there is no God. He deserves to die. The wages of sin is death. And yet Nathan, because of David's confession, because of David's ownership, because of what we see as a kind of repentance that you can read about in Psalm 32 and in Psalm 51, we'll look at some of those passages in a minute. What you see is this heart reality of David's repentance and David's owning of it, and David's not minimizing it. It allows him to experience total forgiveness. That's this word. The Lord has also put away your sin. It means to be carried away to be totally removed. There's no hint of of punishment for this left. It's the kind of forgiveness that David describes in Psalm 103 verse 12, where he writes, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That is the grace of God, friends. Listen, I don't know what you've done. I don't know what kind of sin you've been carrying. I don't know what kind of guilt and shame you feel like just you can't get off of you. But here's what I want to tell you today. If you will own it, and if you will turn to Christ in faith and in repentance and in honesty, he will forgive you. This is what it says in 1 John. If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you are crushed by your sin, God can and will Forgive. Now I realize this is the thing that confronts a graceless world, right? We live in, a, in an increasingly graceless world where if you do anything wrong, if you do anything remotely like this, like even on the spectrum of the stuff David's doing, you're out forever. And the idea that we would believe in a God that would actually forgive that seems heinous to the world. So it's becoming a huge shame honor culture with no opportunity for forgiveness or redemption. And this confronts that. It says, no, you can experience grace. If you're crushed by your sin, God can forgive you. Listen, some of you, you're crushed by your sin. Some of you, maybe it's an affair that you had many years ago. Maybe it's regret over the way you interacted with and treated your kids. Maybe it's over decisions you made the ways you treated people. I don't know what it is. But I don't know how, I don't care how dark it is. And I don't care how long you've been carrying it. There is grace for you in Christ. Our, uh, just a couple days ago, I was at this event and I was listening to this woman who's in her 60s and she told her story about how when she was 23, she got pregnant and she made the decision really coerced significantly by her fiance, made the decision to abort her baby. And she talked about the decades of carrying that with her. No one had to convince her it was wrong. She knew it. She experienced it. She hated herself. And what she actually found was that by being honest with herself and with the Lord about that sin, It was actually the path to healing. It was the path to forgiveness. Now she goes around and she speaks with all kinds of women. She helps train and equip churches on how to care for people who are in a post-abortive situation and, and to love and to care and to say, hey, this isn't the unforgivable thing. 
And I don't want to make it all about that, but whatever it is you're carrying, here's what I'm telling you. There is grace for you. Here's what David writes in Psalm 32. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God can forgive you, and God can redeem you. Whether it's you who sinned, or it's you who's been sinned against. I think about Bathsheba in this story. I wish, I wish this story told more about her. But one thing I know, I don't know all the ways that God redeemed this sin that was sinned against her. But I know at the end of this chapter, we're going to read about the next king being born to Bathsheba, Solomon. And God breathes new life into these sinful situations. Here's our last uh, scene, is the consequences. Though David is absolutely forgiven, his sin is put away yet there remain significant consequences. Verse 10 says that there's going to continue to be violence and mayhem in his sons and in his kingdom. Verse 11 says that his wives are going to be given to others. That happens in 2 Samuel 16, 22. Verse 14, perhaps the most devastating consequence is that the child will die. Fr friends, our, our, our punishment can be forgiven by God. But God often still makes it where we live with the consequences of our sin. And by consequences, I don't mean like eternal consequences, right? If you put your trust in Christ, if you own up to your sin, if you hope in the forgiveness that he offers, you're going to be clean. But, here, but, but there's going to be consequences, right? Like if, if you lived a life of emotional distance and harshness with your children, God will forgive you from that but you will have to live with the reality of the way those relationships are because of that pattern. If you made some really bad decisions financially and you go, man, that was wrong and that was driven by greed and that was driven by insecurity and it was driven by idolatry, it was driven by these other things, the Lord will forgive you, but your debt won't magically go away. Your credit won't magically get better. If lust is part of your story and pornography is part of your story, God will forgive you. God will cleanse you. But he, he generally doesn't wipe your brain free from the images and the memories and the moments. And unfortunately, the, the enemy likes to take all that stuff and keep accusing you and accusing you and accusing you and saying, see, the Lord's not really good. See, the Lord doesn't really love you. See, and I just want to tell you that that's part of the battle that we have to do as followers of Jesus. Because if we're following Jesus, our sin is forgiven, but the consequences remain. So this confronts not just a world who thinks that, well, no one deserves forgiveness ever, but it also confronts the church. Because we think that in order to be really forgiven, everything in your life has to also get better. And the sad reality is we so often have to live with the consequences. But I believe that even with those consequences in this life, that part of what the new heavens and the new earth is, is God redeeming and God restoring 
and God making all things new. So I want to close uh, this message with a prayer. Maybe this is a prayer that you need to pray. So whatever you're wrestling through, whatever areas you're tempted to drift, whatever sin that you're carrying that's been done to you or that you've committed, I want to pray Psalm 51. This is the psalm that David writes after he's confronted by Nathan. I'd encourage you to read the whole thing, but I want to just focus on these two verses. Let's pray these verses together. As I read it, would you just, uh, in your heart, pray this. Ask the Lord to hear your prayer. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Let's pray it again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your chesed, your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.